Thank you, Johanna, and thank you so much to the conference, um, to Martin and the rest of the team for inviting me to be here. I'm thrilled to be here in Malmo and to be celebrating the 10th anniversary, which um, so far I'm sure you'll all agree has been a triumph for all of them. Um, I was also thrilled to be invited to speak about design as a force for positive change, because that has been a key theme of all my books, including Design as an Attitude, which has been republished or will be at the end of this month in a new edition, and also Design Emergency, which I co-wrote with Paola Antonelli. In a neat coincidence, um, Paola was the very first speaker at the very first edition of the conference. Um, she sends her love and her congratulations on the 10th anniversary and of course wishes she could be here. So both Paola and I share a similar vision of design as one of the most powerful tools we have at our disposal to address social, political and ecological change. But we're very aware that most people don't perceive design as being like that at all. They tend to think of it in cliched terms as something that's used for PR, for styling, for consumerism, to bling up overpriced hoodies and trainers and to produce um, overpriced, uncomfortable, unstable chairs for uncomfortable, overpriced hotels. <laughs> now, design has, of course, done all of this and much, much more, but there's much more to it. It's a complex and elusive phenomenon that has meant many different things at different times and in different contexts, which has made it prey to muddles, misunderstandings, and cliches. But I believe it has always had one elemental role in all its many guises, and it's as this. It's as an agent of change that can help us to interpret changes of any type, social, political, cultural, scientific, technological, environmental, to ensure that they affect us positively and not negatively. And design has done this not just for centuries, but for millennia, long before a word was invented to describe it. Because whenever human beings have responded to changes in their way of life, whether it's by fabricating new objects and structures, by modifying their own behavior or other people, they've acted as designers, but they've generally done so instinctively and unknowingly. Uh, so, for example, prehistoric people acted as designers on the necessity as the mother of invention principle when they sharpened sticks, stones, and animal bones into tools and weapons and molded clay into vessels to eat and drink from. But many acknowledged design feats have been equally instinctive. You'll all recognize this, the famous symbol of the clenched fist, um, a sign of strength and purpose and resolution in the face of oppression. It is over 3,000 years old, dating back to ancient Assyria. It has had exactly the same meaning then as it did in the early 1900s when it was used by um, workers' rights activists, um, the women's suffrage movement, Russian revolutionaries, the Ukrainian nationalist movement, and then in the 60s and 70s for the women's rights, gay movement, and also the civil rights movement to Black Lives Matter activists like these. And it's a brilliant gesture. It's an example of design that's absolutely fit for purpose, because the physical art, sorry, the physical action of raising and clenching your fist sends the blood coursing down the vessels in your arms, so you really feel stronger and able to face oppression 
and take on the world. Another slightly less ancient, because it's only 2,000 years old symbol, is this one, the white flag, which of course symbolizes surrender and the end of conflict. It was officially recognized as doing so in the mid-19th century, but had already done some for 2,000 years and continues to do it. Now, a current example of design being a useful tool for resourceful people in perilous circumstances on the necessity as the mother of invention basis is the Ukrainian design response to Vladimir Putin's invasion of their country. I mean, this has been absolutely remarkable in terms of the speed, the imagination, the resourcefulness and ingenuity with which Ukrainian designers have responded. Fashion designers have switched to sewing military uniforms and sleeping bags, architects to converting schools and conference centers into temporary shelters, and designing temporary refugee villages for um, internally displaced people, which is the majority of people who've had to leave their homes in Ukraine, moving from the battlefront on the east to the west when they return home while their homes are being repaired or replaced, and Groups of local volunteers have found ingenious ways of protecting beloved historic monuments like this one. Another example is the work of the interior designer based in Kyiv, Olga Terafeeva, whose brother is a Ukrainian army officer. When he told her that the most useful thing that could be given donated to the Ukrainian army with these spiky hedgehog anti-tank devices, Olga mobilized a national network of designers, makers, metal workers, farriers, and nonprofits to design and make them, and hundreds, if not thousands, of hedgehogs were made. Meanwhile, graphic designers and illustrators have found ways of revealing the human tragedy of this terrible war. This is the work of the Kharkiv-based illustrator Sasha Anisimova, and it's called Stolen Lives. By juxtaposing photographs of the destruction of her beloved home city, Kharkiv, with these very simple line drawings that she has drawn, illustrating the sort of daily routines, the daily activities that people practiced when they lived there before the war, she really brings its impact home. And this apartment building is one in Kharkiv, very near to Sasha's own home, that was bombed and, as you can see, almost destroyed very early in the war. But one of my favorite examples of Ukrainian design ingenuity in wartime is this. This may look like a manky road sign, and indeed it is, but it's part of a nationwide guerrilla campaign initiated by a group of Ukrainian graphic designers to attempt to confuse the Russian military by hacking and vandalizing every single road sign in the country. And tens of thousands of road signs have already been hacked in this campaign. In most of them, um, the, simply the information has been painted over and obscured, but in this particular sign, all the destinations on the original motorway sign have been replaced by the name of one place, and it's The Hague in the Netherlands, the home of the International Criminal Court and the European Court of Human Rights, where Vladimir Putin will surely end up. So Slava Ukraini is the only thing to say to that. Yet most people, of course, wouldn't think of design as responding in this way. They think of it as it was at the start of the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago, when it was used knowingly and systematically to manufacture huge quantities of goods at affordable prices. 
Design was professionalized and formalized at this time. Design schools and training courses opened, clearly def defined methodologies of design and different categories were invented. But I believe this restriction of design to a commercial role, something generally executed under instruction by someone else, marked the beginning of its diminution and its stereotyping as a superficial styling tool, something that was concerned with surface appearance rather than substance. Now, there were always mavericks and activists who attempted to present a different image of design, and one was the redoubtable Buckminster Fuller, the maverick US designer, architect, engineer, self-styled astronaut of Spaceship Earth, who railed against the environmental damage being caused by industrialization as early as the 1920s, and whose work in co-designing the geodesic dome. Here he is with models of the dome that were being developed at Black Mountain College in North Carolina in the early 1940s, sorry, the late 1940s, is arguably the most successful example of humanitarian design ever developed. But he was routinely ignored uh, when in his campaigns. Another marvelous exception is one of my personal design heroes. I've got lots of design heroines and non-binary design idols, but in the interests of gender equality, heroes too. And one of them is Laszlo Moulinage, the great Hungarian artist, designer, and visual theorist. He radicalized early 20th century design culture. As a teacher at the Bauhaus in the mid to late 1920s, he was the first to permit women to study whatever subjects they wished, including those, the majority of the curriculum, previously restricted to men. And when he sought exile, he was Jewish, so he had to leave Nazi Germany in the 1930s in Chicago. He allowed African-Americans to study and also to teach at his experimental design schools at a time when the city's education system was largely segregated. But wherever he was and whatever he was doing, he was generous, optimistic, courageous, completely committed to experimentation. He pioneered film and photography as culturally significant media, and he redefined design as an improvisational medium that was open to absolutely everyone in his 1947 book, Vision in Motion. Now, I was deeply moved by that book and particularly by the title of chapter two, which is designing is not a profession, but an attitude. Because Laszlo Molinage summed up his vision of the future of design, not as a commercial tool, but as a generally valid attitude of resourcefulness and inventiveness. And so partly as a tribute to him, but also because I believe that his concept of design is a defining force in design today, I chose Design as an Attitude as the title of my book. And indeed, design today has been completely transformed into the eclectic, expansive, and empowering medium that he did so much to champion so many decades ago. And the principal reason for this, apart from the talent and energy and determination of the individuals involved, are very basic, super familiar digital tools. Crowdfunding, for example, has enabled designers to raise substantial sums of money to realize their own projects rather than other people's. Tens of millions of dollars in the case of, say, the Dutch social enterprise, the Ocean Cleanup. Um, you can now manage huge quantities of data on affordable computers. Again, this has had a huge impact on the kind of projects, the very ambitious projects designers can tackle.
Social media enables designers to build networks more rapidly than ever before to flush out collaborators, champions, suppliers, fabricators, and so on. And the development of open source intelligence, whether that's um, go find me apps, um, cell phone snaps or film clips or CCTV footage has transformed design into a tool for restorative social justice. Now, individually, any of these changes would have had an impact on design culture, as they have on so many other sectors, but collectively, they have proved transformational. And this is, of course, just as well, because as Liam Young described brilliantly, we urgently need design's power right now as an agent of change at this extraordinarily turbulent and ominous time. Now, we are trapped in a terrifying situation, which for me was summed up by the sign at a women's march on London. It's a terrible photograph, but it is a totally brilliant sign. Now, most of the signs at the march were devoted to particular causes, but this one I felt summed everything up brilliantly. And so what are the issues that could have been on the sign? Well, far too long to a list to mention all of them. The escalating climate emergency, of course, when wildfires are rampant and many African countries are facing the worst famines in history. The collapse of social systems, the worsening housing and homelessness crises, the curse of McJobs. Growing inequality between rich and poor, old and young, the global north and the global south. The human tragedy and economic turmoil of war not only in Ukraine, but the many other conflicts worldwide. And the rise of intolerance, bigotry, the crisis of social justice. And of course, the refugee crisis, in which a historic 100 million people, the most since records began, are desperately trying to find new homes. The urgent need to curb lethal infectious diseases like COVID-19 and now monkeypox, and also critically to prevent future pandemics. Another huge issue is, of course, accelerating advances in technology. You know, the things that we once saw as props in science fiction films are now absolutely ubiquitous, or as Liam put it the other way round, a daily life now looks like a sci-fi dystopia. And biometric surveillance systems like this are practical examples of that. We urgently need design to identify constructive uses for neuromorphic and quantum computing, informatics, and other advances that we know will be part of daily life in years to come, and critically to avoid their dangers. Now, design is not a panacea for any of these problems, but it can be a powerful tool if it's applied intelligently, sensitively, responsibly, and in constructive collaboration with specialists from other disciplines. And there are lots of examples of designers who are responding to this with extraordinary work in Designers and Attitude and also in Design Emergency Building a Better Future and the original Design Emergency Instagram Research Project. Now, Paula and I wrote this book to convince people of design's power as an agent of change by sharing examples of global design leaders who are addressing complex challenges, not only with their experiments and theories, but with practical examples. In the past, historic emergencies as profound as the COVID-19 crisis and the Ukrainian war have been catalysts for positive change. And Paula and I are convinced that they will fuel a similar process of radical redesign and reconstruction. 
and we hope in a modest way to try to ensure that design, political and public perceptions of design change so that it can be seen as central to those efforts to reconstruct our lives. As for example, after the Great Fire of London in 1966, the, the fire, sorry, in 1666, 300 years before, the fire brigade was formed. After the brilliantly named Great Stink in London in 1858, the great design engineer Joseph Bazalgette completely redesigned the water and sewage systems which are still working today. It's only now that they're about to be replaced. And of course, after World War II, not only in the UK, but Sweden and many other countries, the welfare state was born. So, in the Design Emergency book, we have many examples of designers who are at the forefront of positive change, and just a couple of examples very quickly. One is the British architect Peter Barber, who's dedicated his working life to social housing, creating affordable housing for people in urgent need, generally building on shoestring budgets and on scrappy sites. Or Mohammed Fayaz, an Indian Muslim illustrator and activist, whose work is devoted to depicting the lives of trans and queer people of color like themselves and to combat stereotypes of those communities by revealing the wit, joy, glamour, fragility, eccentricities, and idiosyncrasies of each individual. The work of two extraordinary women, Sarah Saeed Karam and Ifat Safar Agar, two Pakistani doctors who co-founded the telemedical network Sehat Kahani, which means story of health, in Urdu, with the aim of improving access to healthcare in Pakistan, a country of over 200 million people, less than half of whom currently has access to a doctor. Six years after its launch, Sahat Kahani is now treating seven million patients, which is an extraordinary feat. Sarah and Ifat obviously began as medical, their journey as medical specialists, not as designers, but they're both very into design and very into tech. And so they designed with collaborators the network itself. And it's absolutely at the forefront of telemedicine, not only in Pakistan or South Asia, but internationally. Then there's the British social scientist and pioneer of social design, Hilary Cotton, who's dedicated to redesigning our social systems and making them fit for purpose, always foregrounding the design process in her research and development work. And finally, the Israeli-born architect, Eyal Weizmann, the founder of Forensic Architecture, who uses open source um, intelligence, and uh, the spatial design and architectural tools that he was trained in to establish the truth about human rights abuses, war and climate crimes, and to secure restorative justice for the victims. And by doing so, AL has invented a completely new role of design as digital detection agencies and immersive research agencies and achieving a great deal to address the collapse of social justice worldwide. But rather than talking about lots of different projects, I'm going to focus on just a couple of them. And the first is this. This is the Great Green Wall of Africa. It's a truly epic design endeavor that I've been absolutely fascinated by for years. It is a brilliant example of the strategic use of design 
in one of the hottest, driest, poorest, and most fragile areas of the world, the Sahel region, the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. And it's incredibly ambitious. Its aim is to build an 8,000 kilometer, sort of, they call it the Great Green Wall, but it's really a sort of line of vegetation and restored agricultural land um, from one coast of Africa to another. So from Senegal in the west coast to Djibouti on the east coast. And it's also an excellent example of the type of long-term, incredibly complex, intensely intersectional challenges that design is going to have to increasingly deal with in the future if it is to make a major impact on the massive problems that we face. And so as an intersectional challenge, the Great Green Wall is an issue of where a problem of one type drought in the Sahel region not only triggered other environmental problems, crop failure, soil erosion, desertification, deforestation, but also caused massive socioeconomic problems in the region, from famine to poverty, um, to mass migration, to war, increased terrorism, supply shortages, and so on. It's a long-running and highly contentious project that has frequently been reported to be on the brink of failure. It was founded in 2007 when work began. It's completely African-led, as it should be, under the aegis of the African Union, but with funding from the United Nations, the World Bank, and other governments. Each country is individually responsible for restoring the land on its part of the 8,000 kilometers. And so they're free to adopt the most appropriate means of doing so. So Senegal, for example, which you can see here, has had great success with tree planting, whereas Niger and Burkina Faso have tended to focus on reinventing traditional irrigation and planting techniques. The progress has been very erratic. Those three countries have all done exceptionally well, as did Ethiopia until civil war broke out two years ago. And of course, work on the wall came to a halt. By early last year, only 20% of it had been completed. And in the midst of a global pandemic, its chances looked fairly slim of continuing. But by the end of the year, the World Bank and the French government had raised 19 billion US dollars, which gives the Great Green Wall a fighting chance of completion and of creating 10 million new green jobs by 2030. And as Alex Arson, its head of advocacy, says, it's intended to be a wall that brings people together rather than keeping us apart. Equally extraordinary is the work of an incredible designer, the Italian civil engineer Francesca Coloni in the refugee crisis. For 20 years, Francesca worked in refugee camps like this, the Zatari camp in Jordan, working on the front line, designing the infrastructure that the camps needed. And for the last two years, she's worked for the UNHCR in Geneva as their head of design. And interviewing Francesca was absolutely fascinating because her work as a designer is really all about trying to reconcile the conflict between her idealism of wanting to create safer, fairer ways of lives for refugees while they seek temporary shelter in camps with the compromises that are forced on her and her colleagues because of the extreme urgency of the situations that they constantly face. For example, when she was working in the Zatari camp, then as now, one of her main objectives was to find a fully ecologically sustainable way of operating the camps. 
But at a time when there were over 2,000 new arrivals every single night, the urgency of dealing with their immediate needs meant that all that had to be abandoned so she could focus on the urgent issues in hand. There's also the contradiction that the UNHCR knows that refugee camps really don't work, and it's desperate to develop and fund more effective ways of providing temporary shelter for refugees. And it decided this in 2014 when it announced its decision to abolish the camps, but because of the recurrent cycles of a heightened refugee crisis ever since, it's never been able to do so. There's also the dissonance between the need to provide emergency support for new arrivals and the sheer longevity of camps and the length of time that people spend there. The Zatari camp, for example, is now the fourth largest city in the whole of Jordan. And it's not the biggest refugee camp in the world. That is Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, which is providing hopefully temporary shelter, but many of them have already been there for years, for over a million people. And also trying to allow for the fact that because refugees spend so long in the camps, typically four or five years, their lives change dramatically. There'll be births in their families, there'll be deaths. So their shelter and every other aspect of the resources provided by the UNHCR needs to be flexible enough to address that. But critically, it's also hugely important to Francesca and her colleagues to make the most of the refugees' own ingenuity by bringing them in as co-designers, um, which they've done with great success in some of the camps in Uganda, for example, but also their ingenuity and resourcefulness in many different ways. She said that however alarming and heartbreaking the work in the Zatari camp was at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis, she and her colleagues were just in awe of the entrepreneurialism and resourcefulness of the refugees themselves. She said literally they would start trading, setting up markets within a day or two of arrival. Now, what country wouldn't benefit from the instinctive resourcefulness of people like that? And then as a final example, the work of the Australian technologist Kate Crawford in researching artificial intelligence. We were very keen for design emergency in uh, obviously technology is a huge part of our research and a huge part of the book, but to look at it in terms of protecting us from, from its dangers and crucially anticipating them as well as benefiting from the advantages that new advances can bring. And Kate sums this up brilliantly in her excellent book, Atlas of AI, in which she talks about the problems of data bias, of AI programs being run on established data, which means it's always at risk of perpetuating historic racism um, and sexism and other bigotry and other prejudices and misidentification, even for something as seemingly harmless as AI run um, recruitment programs, um, they tend to suggest white cis males from most roles, certainly in Western Europe and North America, because they're running on historic data and traditionally the people who filled those roles have almost always been cis white males. Kate also addresses its ecological impact, which unfortunately is profound. We tend to think of the negative environmental impact of digital technology being places like the, the um, Abgogloshi dump near Accra in Ghana, these massive hell holes where millions of unwanted digital devices are dumped to poison um, the land seemingly forever. 
but there are also invisible aspects of it because powerful software programs like artificial intelligence programs consume colossal amounts of energy. They also emit vast quantities of carbon. And because they're often in isolated rural locations, that's very, very damaging indeed. And of course, as we know, AI is also um, run often in parallel, unfortunately, with labor exploitation, another issue that urgently needs action and attention as it becomes increasingly ubiquitous. And as Kate says, artificial intelligence should be an issue for public debate. Now, as I've said, design is not a foolproof solution for any of these challenges, nor is it a surefire gold-plated catalyst to enable us to make the best of them. But it is an incredibly useful tool if, and it's a big if, it's used responsibly, empathically, and intelligently. And if it isn't, why should we expect other people to take it seriously? It can't possibly command the public confidence and political support that it needs to be placed at the forefront of post-pandemic redesign and reconstruction, and frankly, it wouldn't deserve to do so. So it is absolutely crucial that if design or attitudinal design is to continue to prove its worth in forging positive change, it must prove that it can do so. Now, Paula and I hope that the 25 global design leaders, doctors, social scientists, farmers, activists, and so on, who um, feature in design emergency, will help to prove that point, as I'm sure will the collective energy of everyone in this room. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. I, uh, we have time for some questions. Uh, I have a question uh, at first, which is, I love everything you said, but I do self-identify as a designer. And I wonder, I mean, in this logic, in this way of describing it, I guess everything, every kind of making or innovation is design in some way. So if everything is design, what does that mean? What follows from that? Well, this is a sort of long-running debate. I mean, when the discussion about this more eclectic and expansive, the Laszlo Moulinage vision of um, design where fabulous chefs, for example, can uh, also be seen as designers, when that began, a lot of people said, if everything can be designed and everyone can be a designer, doesn't that invalidate design, certainly professionally and as a practice. And I think that question should actually be different. It should be, is there value in looking at any project as a design project? And I would argue that there generally is. If I'm planning a journey, if I'm thinking of how to cook a meal, if I approach it, and I'm not a trained designer, if I approach it as a design project, if the outcome is going to be better, of course, we should call it design. So a good example would be the work of Hilary Cotton, also not a designer. She's a social scientist and a development economist. She discovered design almost by accident when she was running big water projects for the World Bank in Africa in the 1990s and realized that their success or failure was very erratic. So she investigated the key factors and found that the quality of design was essential. So then decided to research whether it could address the social problems she wanted to develop new solutions to back in Britain. She is completely convinced that if she runs those projects as design projects with a designer often a conventionally trained graphic or product designer 
as the lead, they use design language, they adhere to the design process, there's a better outcome. There's more lateral thinking, there's better communication with the users and funders, and the outcome is more effective. If I sit in the room now and have just realized to my surprise that I am in fact a designer, what do I do next? Where do I begin? <laughs> uh, be proud of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there, would you, is, could you recommend a book? Could you recommend some starting point if I'm, if I'm overwhelmed by this news? Well, um, I mean, apart from your own, obviously. Uh, uh, obviously. Well, definitely vision in motion. I mean, there are so many wonderful books about design at the moment. So I mentioned Kate Crawford's Atlas of AI, which is fantastic. Obviously, it's a hugely complex subject. She never shrinks from the complexity, but it's written in a very clear and engaging way. Um, there is a brilliant book on design and gender politics by the activist Caroline Criado Perez called Invisible Women. And she tells us what we, all we feminists have known for many, many years, that um, certainly the industrial world is designed largely by and for men. And she demonstrates this in data to ask why women are 50% likelier to be seriously injured in car crashes by men because the car and all its safety systems are designed almost always by men using male um, archetype crash test dummies and so on. So those are two books that are absolutely brilliant. And then another favorite is Julia Watson's um, Low Tech Design, which is a brilliant um, book about design in indigenous cultures. So, you know, floating villages in flooded areas of, of Syria, the extraordinary hanging bridges of um, in the sort of foothills of the Himalayas. I mean, there are amazing books about design at the moment. And if you're into design history, I strongly recommend Elizabeth Otto's Haunted Bauhaus, because it is a brilliant, radical, queer, and activist history of the Bauhaus. Haunted the Bauhaus. Bau Bau Haunted Bauhaus. Great title. <laughs> <laughs> Even better book. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. Let's see if, if the room has any questions. I might need a little bit more light, perhaps, in the house. Um, Let's see. If you would like to ask a question, please wave vigorously until the microphone is in your hand. We have a question right here on my left. Yes. There you go. Hi, Alice. Thank you for uh, a great uh, talk. Uh, my name is Andresa. I work at Invest in Scorner uh, in the region. Um, uh, my question is, how do we traverse the divide between design uh, being um, the, uh, providing the possibility to find solutions to problems and then the thought that with every new design, we bring into the world a new kind of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, with every example of bad design, that happens. Um, by bearing the latter in mind, I mean, Laszlo Moulinage um, always talked about anticipatory design, as did Buckminster Fuller. And you are absolutely right. Design has obviously been fully culpable in the massive crises that we um, face now. Um, but if all the crap that has contributed to and accelerated the climate emergency had been intelligently, sensitively, and responsibly designed, we would be better off. I mean, um, Liam was given the question, what gives you hope? being an inherently optimistic person, and also just researching all these incredible characters. It's impossible for me not to feel optimistic, but actually the blunt truth is that I think one of the factors that will enable us to make the most progress in quantitative and qualitative terms in addressing the climate emergency, which we so desperately need to do, 
is the fact that we've just been so crap in the past <laughs> and are currently so crap. And actually, once people take decisive and effective action, the benefits become very obvious very often. So I think bearing your second point in mind is the way to go. Wonderful. There's a question here in the middle. Let's see slightly maybe to my left. Yes? Yes? Okay, there's a microphone coming from the right. Please keep waving so the good people can see you. Yes, great. There we are. Uh, hey, thank you very much. My name is Kutada and I'm just gonna go into a micro perspective of design and I would like to hear your advice when how when we design with teams or design of creating something we will not fail into controlling the outcome so we kill the innovation in design especially when like we designing a process for like a solution for problem when we work together in teams and then like most often I am worried about like we kill spontaneity and like innovation so what is your recommendation about that or your advice thank you well, I am aware that when um, most of the people I've spoken about work independently, so they sort of set their rules of engagement. They choose the commissions um, or initiate them increasingly themselves, um, identify the projects they wish to work on. But I mean, every design project is about consultation and compromise. So I spoke about um, the many compromises that Francesca Coloni has had to make in her work. She works for the UNHCR, and she is dealing with a massive global crisis. So if you're talking about um, feeling constrained by the expectations of the people who commission your work as a designer, or your co-workers, or your collaborators or whoever, all you can do is articulate your views as diplomatically as possible. And what a lot of designers who are sensibly deeply concerned about that are doing is working on their own projects or pursuing their own favored political, social, and ecological causes in their own time. So I think a very positive development is the emergence of groups like All in All, which is an agency in London, founded two years ago by the German designer Ava Feldkamp. And Ava had had an incredibly successful career in interior design, but really wanted to do something that fed her political conscience and interests. So she set up All in All as a sort of conduit between um, designers like herself who want to work on social and humanitarian or environmental projects and the nonprofits and the public sector bodies who are commissioning them. And so the designers don't have to work full time on them. They can make it clear from the start how much time they will need. And I think that not only will help designers to fulfill their own objectives and have very positive examples they can show to convince people who perhaps weren't originally persuaded by them to um, agree to adopting them, but also it could be their encouraging first step in giving them the confidence, the networks, the knowledge, the experience and skills they need to initiate projects of their own. Wonderful. I, I wonder if this is something I'm allowed to say because I, I expect a lot of your employers have paid your tickets to be here, but I also think we're in such a hurry now to find solutions that, and then I'm not talking about you specifically, obviously, but, but if one is zooming out and, and feeling that what I do at work doesn't have meaning, maybe now is the time to find another job, <laughs> especially if you're doing something eminently employable so that you'll still be able to, to support yourself. No, Let's do exactly. one more question. Uh, let's see in the middle, uh, yeah, again, like straight in front of me, please wave 
very, very <laughs> vigorously. There's the microphone coming right there. And she just to quickly say, yes. Hilary Cotton said one of the reasons she's been able to raise funding and galvanize support for her social design projects is the general acceptance in the social sciences that their conventional methodologies are no longer fit for purpose. So they're increasingly willing to experiment, and that includes design. That's wonderful. Yes. Hey. Um, yeah, I'm Max, uh, and I had actually just a question when we are not designers by skill, but let's say by attitude. What is shaping my attitude to be a designer? Oh, I would say um, it really is all about design's power as an agent of, of change. If you believe in that, and if you believe that change is essential in whatever field, and you're also willing to invest time, energy, resources um, in ensuring that there's genuinely the most effective outcome, then you're acting as a designer. You don't necessarily have to be a fully trained conventional motion designer or industrial designer to do that. And having a design sensibility, I also think, helps to give you an interesting outlook on the world. I was a conventional journalist for many years. I wrote about politics, economics, corporate affairs. I was a foreign correspondent in Paris for the Financial Times. And I, but when I decided I wanted to focus on something I really believed in and was fascinated by, I chose design because it enables me to investigate any phenomenon that happens because it's a completely ubiquitous force in our lives. I do think it's underestimated and misunderstood. And I'm so glad I chose it. You know, I can never stand still. I constantly have to reconsider my thinking. So it's consistently exciting, challenging, and very satisfying, and I can never get it right. Very good. Dear friends, Alice Rosethorn. Oh,